Hi everyone, welcome to the Notes to My Legal Self. This is the place where I have conversations that are relevant to in-house leaders. As we know, in-house leaders care about all kinds of things. They care about their careers, they care about their development, they care about their community, they care about life because we are humans first and humans care about all of those things. And so we have conversations to help us show up as ourselves, do things we love, and be happy practicing law in-house. This is a conversations with people who are actively practicing in-house or helping folks who are practicing in-house. If you're one of those people or you know somebody who would be great for this conversation, let me know. I definitely take nominations. Most of the speakers who join Notes to My Legal Selves have been nominated by you. I am more than excited to hear your suggestions, and there's a really high likelihood that I will act upon them. So with that in mind, without further ado, Robin, welcome to the show. You're a woman who is doing important work. Tell us more about yourself. Well, thank you for having me, Olga. It's really wonderful to be on your show. Um, coming from the Department of Justice after 23 years, this is actually my first podcast. <laughs> I don't know that I would be permitted to actually stream in any sort of live environment, let alone almost speak at many conferences. So it's exciting and um, hopefully uh, I'll bring something meaningful. So that's a little bit of an introduction. Um, I'm currently the executive director of Lawyers Without Borders, which is a global nonprofit that focuses on access to justice and rule of law. And we can talk a little bit more about my journey and where the department in my position took me. Um, but I was a federal prosecutor and assistant United States attorney for almost 23 years before coming to this job at Lawyers Without Borders. Wow, 23 years. It's funny, I actually had a few former prosecutors, including DOJ, who now are doing all kinds of work. Um, I had a few folks that I interviewed who now are doing you know, work in blockchain and DeFi and crypto. And it turns out that's a great background too. So, um, and fun fact, um, at some point for ACC, I did interview the general counsel of FBI. So, um, <laughs> so I've done that too. Um, so, Really cool. Um, would love to, um, we're going to talk a lot about lawyers without borders and what it means to have rule of law and access to justice. But before we do that, you did allude to being prosecutor. You know, tell us the scenic route you took from law school to today. Were there any other steps and, and besides DOJ? And well, if not, or yes, what was the focus in DOJ? No, I... I I think, uh, you know, at first there was a big bang, I guess, you know, I was born in a small town, but we can probably skip over a lot of sort of the early history. But um, I came to law in a fairly straightforward way. I had worked on um, for Congressman Ed Markey back when I was in college and in conversations with him and a number of people that were currently working in Washington decided that I would apply to law school. Um, I went to an all-girls high school, and I mentioned that because I do think that certainly when I attended high school, that has shaped you know much of the way that I look at the world and having developed relationships and being educated in that environment. For me, at least, while extremely challenging at times, has 
sort of shaped how I view the world. Um, and here I am today. Uh, I worked uh, prior to in high school and in law school, mostly in jobs, doing a lot of bartending and waitressing, which I think probably provided some of the best education for actually working at a law firm and even working at a nonprofit. But um, I joined the department um, after working at a law firm for a couple of years and then spent 23 years at the U.S. Department of Justice. Let's talk about the Lawyers Without Borders. Um, and, uh, you know, you mentioned things like, uh, you know, things like rule of law and access to justice. Those are the terms we often kind of throw around. <laughs> but in your context, actually, those terms have specific meanings. So um, just curious how you define them. So we have like a level set of in this conversation. What is sort of rule of law in this context? And what is access to justice in this context? You know, it's a it's an amazing question. I know you're also a lawyer and we have some people, you know, here listening to, you know, I've probably spent most of my career trying to come up with how I would define rule of law. And I think that it probably has different meanings and different applications, but I think for simplest and straightforward analysis, it's the fair application of the law that no one is above the law and that people have confidence and are treated the same and fairly under the law. Yeah, yeah, and that's very important. We kind of, we kind of see that happening worldwide today. Um, I heard you speak at, uh, recently uh, at American Legal Media, and um, I know you advocate for sort of interagency, whole of government approach. What is that, and I guess why? So, I mean, we'll break it into parts. I think, Olga, we have to talk a little bit about my journey. Um, I came from a law firm with a fairly traditional practice, a sort of litigation practice, and spent close to 10, a little over 10 years doing all sorts of litigation for the government in terms of fraud and abuse, but also a fair amount of cybercrime. We have that in common. And, you know, what maybe we'll do another podcast on blockchain and crypto because it's okay. certainly an area of passion. <laughs> it's something I worked on pretty heavily in my work. But one thing the department does is send prosecutors overseas. And I was chosen to serve in Nairobi, Kenya in 2011. And so I worked at the U.S. Embassy in Kenya for four years I also had the opportunity while I was there to work with justice sector officials. We brought our family and we were really embedded within the community. And also I was working directly with the justice sector and government officials there in country as well as the U.S. officials. I worked a lot on national security, cyber crime areas with respect to anti-corruption. And I had much of the same similar position in Jakarta, Indonesia. So for a prosecutor, it is, you know, they send about 65 lawyers overseas per year, um, typically to countries that are working to develop some of their legal infrastructure. So a lot of my perspective comes from having worked overseas, having worked both here domestically. But my final um, tour overseas for the department, I worked for the Department of Defense. And I worked at the U.S. European Command, which is a strategic military base in Stuttgart, Germany. 
And I think some was learning. Um, so I'll pause there for a minute. So I think having those experiences, the legal education and having worked in these environments, when I came to the military, um, Admiral Stravitas, who was the four-star general who ran the command prior to my arrival, had created the joint interagency. It was sort of in the vernacular, the J-9. And his basic premise was that you can't solve global problems through the military alone, and that you need the partnerships with the public and private sector, and that you need strong collaboration. And I think those principles apply in numerous contexts, certainly in the nonprofit nonprofit context, which we can talk a little bit about. But in the area of law enforcement and um, compliance in different areas that really require agencies to work together, whether it be the intelligence services, the CIA, or other intelligence services, law enforcement, you mentioned the FBI, Department of Homeland Security, that the ability to bring these partners together to solve problems is really the critical piece of it. And so the basic premise is you can't solve those problems down the barrel of a gun alone, that you need the interagency, whether it be the cabinet level agencies, State Department, Department of Commerce, Treasury, as well as the law enforcement agencies to be cooperating. Yeah, you know, just like in business, it's everything is a team sport <laughs> in the end of the day. Um, so that, that that's very interesting. And so that perspective resonates. I mean, it makes sense. You know, everything I've accomplished in the business world has been with others, um, and 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 valuing the perspectives and approaches of others is what actually makes it a better team. In the context of what you do today. What does that practically mean and what have you seen accomplished using this sort of collaborative team approach? So I think the first thing to acknowledge is the, the military at the U.S. European Command institutionalized this interagency cooperation. They actually took the cabinet level agencies, Department of State, Treasury, and others, as well as seven different law enforcement agencies, and put us all together on the same floor, working commonly with our military partners to address issues, whether it be issues with respect to Russia and Ukraine, with respect to cybersecurity, with respect to um, dealing with potential emergency situations within, within Europe where we were located. And so what I apply to that is that you can have that it really makes sense for leaders and people in the business community or the nonprofit to institutionalize and to come up with solid frameworks of how the interagency actually works together. Um, it can apply also to how you set up a large company or even a small company where your employees actually are put in an environment where they can cooperate and exchange ideas. And when you say institutionalize, practically speaking, what, what does it mean? So, I mean, taking from the military example, the practical matter was that they created a funded unit within the military that sole responsibility was to cooperate across the cabinet level agencies 
the intelligence services and the law enforcement. So they funded it, they created the requirement, and then they created the concepts and rules of how we would engage with each other. They gave us quite a bit of flexibility because it's not typical that a Department of Justice prosecutor would sit across the hall from a Department of Treasury uh, official or sit across the hall from someone from the Drug Enforcement Administration. We typically have our own offices. We typically work under specific missions with specific mandates. And the European Command felt so strongly that the interagency was the path to peace and security that they paid for these officials to come and sit and work together. So I guess to transfer that to the business or the nonprofit environment, you as a as a leader or someone with responsibility for teams have to create the structures and the ability for your teams to work together to solve these problems. So in the context of wars without borders, are, are you using those principles um, to sort of accomplish um, the same mission or similar mission? So thinking strategically about what nonprofits do in the field, I think that Lawyers Without Borders sort of models this idea of interagency cooperation. We are working in a demand-driven model on projects that impact human trafficking, wildlife poaching, as well as supporting human rights defenders, providing training, education, and experience to human rights defenders doing legislative analysis and evaluating the ability for um, people to have and maintain their rights in communities. We have to work across the government agencies within the particular country. We have to work cooperatively with organizations such as the UN, the United Nations, and the World Bank. And we have to work across with other nonprofits. There are often many players within these international environments. So while it may seem that a nonprofit would have a project working on protecting the pangolin or the sub-Saharan African population, they really need to establish the legal framework, the rules of engagement. And there are many players that go into accomplishing those goals. I think. Um, so what would be some, you know, I'm, I'm curious kind of examples of this sort of military justice cooperation, right? Um, sure. That, 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 that actually are impactful. Um, so I'll give you an example. Um, when I first arrived at the command and, um, you know, everything is in an unclassified environment here. I was at a conference in the Czech Republic for uh, another institution. And at that event, I was asked by a lot of judges, they were handling counterterrorism cases. And in the context of their work, they were asking why they could receive information and evidence for court from family members, but they were not receiving any of that same information or evidence to be used in those terrorism cases against ISIS or other other criminal prosecutions. And what was interesting is I went back to the European Command and spoke with my military colleagues, most of which represented the four branches of the US military government. And you had soldiers and sailors um, and pilots that had spent their career collecting information in Afghanistan, Syria, and Iraq. 
hundreds of millions of documents that had been triaged and taken out of the battlefield of the the wars and the um, missions of the military. And it's typically stored by the military, but there wasn't any real discussion about whether that information could be used for other purposes. And what we talked about is using it for other finishes. So the military obviously has its mandate and priorities. Um, we often talk about the kinetic mission of the military, but could that information be used for other purposes such as prosecution? And what was interesting is one of the Marines that was a partner on this project early on told me, he goes, Robin, I think prosecutors are one of the most important links and the most important thing for me and my job and for the soldiers and the, the military folks I'm dealing with. He said, often they're put in positions in the field where they have to make decisions whether they are going to make lethal, lethal strikes or act um, in a very quick manner when they know that they are not the only solution and that there are other ways to go after military targets if necessary. It gives them options. And there had been a young soldier that had gotten really frustrated over the course of events when he was working in Iraq, seeing that uh, one of the, the military targets would go into prison for what he believed were to be charged with terrorist activities only to get out. And he actually ran that man down with his car. And it was devastating. Obviously he, you know, I'm, I'm sort of discussing this in a more superficial way, but it, it changed his life. You know, he will spend most of the rest of his life in prison. And what my colleague told me is that he's able to explain to his soldiers that they have, other choices, that the law, that the rule of law, that prosecution with sufficient evidence can be a valuable finish for the military. And it took the cooperation of multiple agencies across law enforcement and the military to identify these records to have and ensure they were unclassified and that they could be used in criminal prosecution. Oh, yeah, very interesting. And um, you mentioned you were in Kenya and, um, you know, in, in Africa. Have you seen some examples there? Because that, that's a very fascinating re region. So, yeah, I mean, interestingly enough, not so much in Kenya, but in Nigeria and parts of sub-Saharan Africa, the military has actually the remit or the responsibility for handling terrorism investigations. So they are the first responders and manage those particular cases. It's also true in many of the wildlife cases that the military or security services are handling those investigations. So if you talk about interagency cooperation, you are going to need links between those first responders, the military and law enforcement in order to bring prosecution. I mean, I think we can all agree we don't want military using lethal force on, you know, civilian local targets for criminal offenses and that having ways to conduct fair trials and to be able to carry out evidence-based cases is going to be better for the community and allow for a judge. In most of those cases, there's not a jury there. You know, many of them are civil law systems but are going to allow for a fair administration of justice than a military action on a civilian target. 
So those principles of interagency cooperation and information sharing apply in many of those settings. In principle, makes sense. But in practice, maybe sometimes hard. <laughs> am I, am I, am I, am I missing something? Is it just me that's sort of thinking that sounds wonderful? Um, it is. Um, <laughs> I will say it's the hardest thing I have done in probably my personal and professional career. I've had three children. I think dealing with interagency cooperation may have been harder than actually having them and raising them. Um, I think it boils down to, uh, you know, the structures of government, the way in which humans interact, you know, the idea that a lot of people want cooperation, but they don't want to be managed, you know, what they want coordination, but they don't want to be coordinated. Um, there's also just a lot of information and it's challenging to, to share it. But I will tell you, that's where the magic happens, especially with a nonprofit, getting that communication, getting the working groups, the roundtables where there is the communication, whether it be to go after victim-based crimes, to go after high-level targets, to recover the money in criminal cases. And I imagine in the business world, too, is often the where the best problem solving, where the, you know, the values of the corporation can be shared. Um where the best work can be done is when you have those voices. I guess I want to talk a little bit about this approach and how it could, you know, I, I full disclosure, I'm Ukrainian, this, this combat crime stuff is kind of, you know, near and dear to my heart today. Uh, without sort of coloring this conversation with that baggage, um, you know, I'm curious how that approach can encourage and promote security and, and really combat crime. Um, I know your background and it's devastating to see what's happening to the people of Ukraine. I met with a lawyer at Gibson Dun and Crutcher earlier this week that is working on some of the war crimes, you know, thinking about what will be the next steps. Both based on my background in the work at Lawyers Without Borders, I think a lot about what Ukraine will look like, hopefully in the very near future when there's a, transi a transition away from war activities. And if you think about the transition back, you have to look at the role of the police and what power and what structure they're going to have when hopefully a steady state return to a more peaceful situation. And I think that's where the interagency is most powerful. It's going to allow for the communication among the various ministries, among law enforcement, among the nonprofits to identify the resources that are needed. You know, things are in such crisis now, it's it's hard to, to think of that as the next step. I also think in the areas of accountability and the ability to preserve evidence and to document what happens, you need the cooperation across military nonprofits, people that are coming in and providing money to the front lines. And so, I've actually, in preparation for this, thought a lot about how those principles do apply. I mean, you have many of the same challenges that we talked about in Africa and also in that, we call it sort of colloquially the battlefield evidence that you're taking information from the battlefield and then using it in civilian court or for other, other purposes. Um, but I, I think a lot of those principles will apply. Yeah, it would be interesting to see that. Can you share uh, a few ideas of how students or young professionals or professionals 
you know, in not young in, in their part of in any part of the career because we know, especially if you're in house, um, how they what they can do um, to use this interagency cooperation to promote security and combat crime, or um, how they can contribute to part of this great mission, this important um, mission that that you're on. How can we support you, and, and you know what can we do to learn more? I think people, especially lawyers in an enlightened society, are leaders. Judges, lawyers have um, been given a really valuable education. And I think with that comes a duty to give back to your community, to uh, give back in the global context as well. And I think professionals should look for ways to do pro bono activities, whether it be in their community unrelated to the legal practice or to identify ways that they can give back and be part of the global conversation on how we solve these problems. The one thing I've thought a lot about and you know, what is the role of a nonprofit? How can that be part of the interagency here? You know, why would a nonprofit be training or working with prosecutors or judges? I think one of the answers is one, they, offer, they have the expertise. Um, and I've seen that in the context of the global conversation, really no one else is going to do the work. You know, corporations, law firms, governments aren't able to send over the resources that are often needed. And so nonprofits and getting involved in the global mission or within your community can have a real difference. What I've also seen is that when you do that, you know, we have so many issues here in the U.S. How does a nonprofit remain credible overseas in the time of you know, just watching the news with the challenges we have internally. I think one, we all have obligations to give back here and to try and ensure peace and stability and the conversation here in the U.S. But by being part of this global engagement and working on these rule of law issues, access to justice issues globally, it really opens your mind to the challenges that exist around the world and gives you tools to come back and to perhaps be more inspired or prepared to have that engagement. And what are the sort of practical ways, if you're saying in-house, to be involved? Like, well, what is the one or two or three things you recommend um, that in-house professionals can do? So in-house counsel can volunteer, they can do pro bono service, they can hold fundraisers for nonprofits, they can provide in-kind service. You have a lot of skills with respect to compliance, with respect to marketing, potentially in your corporation, um, and with respect to identifying needs that are typically very um, hard to fill at a small nonprofit, even a large nonprofit. And so as you think of things like environmental, social, and governments, ESG, really thinking how you can partner with those on the ground and people that are sort of at the pointy edge of the spear, not to take a military reference, but um, to reach out and offer your services and figure out how you can contribute. This has been a very enlightening conversation, Robin. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, and uh, I really love your perspective and your experiences that are so unique both with the department, with a nonprofit, and also overseas, uh, they very much, um, you know, add to the perspective and, and the examples were just fantastic. I've learned so much from you. 
Um, what is the one or two things that you want the folks who have been part of this conversation today to take away, um, to maybe think about, maybe implement in their life? If they get nothing else, what is that one thing? You know, I, I want to make sure I say I'm profoundly grateful for all the experiences that I've had and the people that I've met. I really couldn't have imagined um, having those experiences back when I was in school or even when I started practicing law. So especially for those that are maybe newer in their career, or maybe you're further along in your career and you feel like perhaps, um, you know, there's areas that might open up your practice or lead to new experiences. I really encourage you to think about how to follow your passions and your ambitions um, and to, to give back and to figure out ways that you can support those in the legal community with you to, to be able to find their and meet their goals. I, I very much love that message. So thank you so much, Robin. Thank you everyone for joining. Uh, giving back should not be reserved to the end of your career. Giving back is something you can do throughout your career. Giving back not only feels good, but also an absolutely good way to learn and be part of the community. And many of us, I would even say all of us go to law school with some definition of justice and some way we want to be part of the community and give back. Um, and I just love the, the, the story Robin shared and the way she shared we can be part of the global community. Um, we can be part of upholding the rule of law. Thank you so much for joining. As I mentioned before, I look forward to hearing from you, um, you know, with the nominations of folks we can learn from and be inspired by. Most of the guests that join me have been nominated by you, so definitely put your recommendations and get in touch with me and let me know. Um, and without you know, being between you and your weekend. I hope you enjoy your weekend and I will definitely see you soon. Thank you so much, everyone. Bye.